Um, if you have your Bibles, you turn in with me to Genesis and 34. We had a break over our Easter season, and we return to our study of Genesis, book of Genesis. Let's pray before we read God's Word. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. Amen. So we're working our way through Genesis, um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, 50 chapter opening book of the Bible. And one of the advantages of working our way through the Bible verse by verse is that the Bible is the Bible and sets the agenda. But you do come to passages you might otherwise wish to skip, hard passages, ugly passages, but things that God has to teach us, because all of his word is breathed out and is profitable for us. Maybe Genesis 34 is a story that you're familiar with, perhaps one that you've never encountered and wish you were not familiar with, but it is the next chapter, so we'll read from it and see what God has to teach us from it. So Genesis and 34... And verse 1, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamer, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favour in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you'll become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honoured of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. 
Let us take their daughters and wives, and let us give them our daughters only on this condition. Will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised? Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of, the ja sons of Jacob came upon a slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant words. That's what it is. The Bible is an honest book. It's hard to read. This is a truly gruesome story. There are two obvious atrocities. The humiliation of Dinah and the humiliation of the Shechemites. And the story just is encapsulated in those two phrases. At the beginning when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her lay with her and humiliated her. That's the first humiliation. And then on the verse 25, when Simeon and Levi took their swords and came against the city and killed all the males. And these two parallel statements give us in basic form the two atrocities in the passage. Did you notice that God is not mentioned anywhere in chapter 34? It's telling that in the last verse of Genesis 33, where we left off, Jacob, he enters the promised land. He built an altar and called it El Elho Israel, the God of Israel. And after worshipping there and naming the altar the God of Israel, Jacob so radically departs from the God of his fathers. Yahweh Elohim is conspicuously absent in Genesis 34. So the end of Genesis 33, the last word, is El, Eloi, Israel. And in the very beginning of Genesis 35, God said to Jacob, the very first word of chapter 35, God said to Jacob. Genesis 33 ends with God, Genesis 35 begins with God, and in Genesis 34, there is no mention of God, which tells us something of the passage. Everyone in Genesis 38 and 34 has blown it. No one gets it right. But let's move through the various characters in Genesis 34. We've looked at that sometimes, the way to look at it, to look at the characters. Dinah, first of all. And I won't, I've written down all my workings out, how I got to it, but we don't it's sometimes an interesting study to see how old 
the children of Jacob are in the story. I won't go through all my calculations. I'll switch through a few pages there. But um, we probably think that that Dinah is a late teenager, judging by the fact that Simeon and Levi, even though the men are incapacitated, are old enough to go with swords and kill the Shechemites. We think that Simeon and Levi would be in their early 20s, maybe around the 20 mark, which would put Dinah as a late teenager. That's, you know, that's kind of trying to put the age for it from what I can deduce from the scriptures. But she is a victim for sure. She is violated in the most humiliating way by this man who acts anything but the princely man that he's supposed to be. She is a victim, full stop. She is a victim, she's violated, she's humiliated by Shechem. And there's also a hint in verse 1 of what the passage is going to be about when it says that she went out to see the women of the land. And if you've been with us or been, done your own study through the book of Genesis, that's also a theme, that the Canaanite women, the women of the land, they repulsed Abraham, Isaac and Rebekah. They didn't, that's why they, you know, the, the boys very so were sent away to marry within their own tribe. They didn't like their ways, they worshipped foreign gods, that's why Rebecca sent Jacob away. They didn't want Jacob to make Esau's mistake and marry the women of the land. So the statement here tells us something about the dilemma facing God's people at this point in the first book of Moses. And I have German connections, my wife is German, and it's interesting that this is called the first book of Moses in the German Bible, it's Genesis. But when you get half chapters like this, as I did, and I've been wrestling with it for weeks, you just you need to step back and say, why are we told this? Why are the hundreds and thousands of stories that could have been told about Jacob's family? Why are we told this? And we're Bible people, so we believe that every word comes through God's hand. So what purpose does retelling this story serve in advancing the narrative of Jacob and his children? Well, one of the things which has been a sub-theme as we work through the book of Genesis is we see the outworking of the Abrahamic promise. Where are the promises being fulfilled here? Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And even though they didn't go about their vengeance in the right way, we see, nevertheless, what God promised to Abraham. They cursed Abraham's family, they are cursed. And again, the holy family, not very holy, but despite themselves, they leave this incident with more wealth than they started. Just as Abraham lied about Sarah, Isaac lied about his wife, Every time they cannot get out of their way. They are evil so often, yet despite them, God continues to be faithful to his promise. Despite them, God is faithful to his promise. So that's an underlying theme. But there's an even more foreground theme in this passage, and it's hinted at at verse 1. This is what the story, I think, is ultimately about. Why? 
and how are God's people going to dwell in the land? Because the land isn't empty. The land is filled with Canaanites. So how will the Israelites assimilate with the local people? And this really is relevant for us. You see, the good news to them is, look Jacob, you're back. You're back, you're where you should be. You have your own place in the world. And yet it is not your own place because there are other people in the world. Verse 1 is certainly not suggesting that Dinah bore any blame for what happened. But it's laying out this big theme of the chapter. Because as Dinah goes to see the women of the land, the question is before us. How will God's people, how will the people of God maintain their unique character, calling and identity when we're surrounded by people who are not God's people? And that is the question for all of us. How do we retain our unique calling, character, identity as the people of God when we live among all sorts of people who are not God's people? We do not yet have a separate colony on Mars. And surely we would not want that. Because we are to be in the world but not of the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be salt and light. God does not call us to be removed from the world. But here they are, encamping in the promised land, and yet, lo and behold, there are Hivites and there are Canaanites. How will God's people relate to these other cultures? How will they retain their unique identity? This is what this is about. We get hints of it when we're introduced to Dinah, who went out to see the women of the land. Dinah is humiliated by Shechem, and he is the next character we encounter. So we encounter Dinah. Then we encounter Shechem. Look at the order of things in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, he saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, he humiliated her. It's the tragic logic of this sexual assault. The word rape is not mentioned, but that is what it is. He seized her, he lay with her, he humiliated her. And that is a good translation from the Hebrew, because they saw this as a defilement, as a humiliation, an act of violence, but an act of utter shame. And look at the order of verbs in verse 3. It's very, it, it makes hard reading actually. His soul was drawn to Dinah, he loved the young woman and he spoke tenderly to her. The irony that after he did that in verse 2, he wants to speak tenderly to her in verse 3. He's trying to sort of excuse it by saying, I'm madly in love with you. We'd be excused from wondering how you can call it real love when he has abused her, defiled her, shamed her. But after all of that, he is convinced he loves her and wants her to be his wife. This is exactly backwards. Verse 2 should never happen, but it is exactly backwards. He is drawn, he loved, he spoke. No, you speak 
to a woman. You get to know her, you love her, and then as you are drawn in your soul to her, you make a commitment in holy marriage, so you can be drawn together, not just in soul, but in body. Shechem does it all the wrong, wrong way round. No, start, start by speaking tenderly. Then show how you love a young woman, then as your soul is drawn to her, you make a commitment in holy marriage. Shechem sees something and like far too many men, he says, I see it and I want it, and he took. And he tells his father later in verse four, and his father you know, joins in as well, but Shechem is a man who's used to getting what he wants. He tells people, even his own dad, to go out and find the things that he desires. Godly men work exactly the opposite of Shechem. We speak with words, we act out of love, we commit with vows, and then we become one. Real men do not move in the opposite direction. So we have Dinah, we have Shechem, and then we have Hamor, the patriarch of the family, who wants to give his son whatever he wants. There is no indication that there is anyone among the Shechemites who thinks that Shechem has done anything wrong. It's it, 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 it staggering. And Hamor is also shrewd because he sees an opportunity here to not only peacefully assimilate with Jacob, because Jacob is coming with many people, flocks and herds. And when it talks about the Shechemites, don't think of a whole nation state, just a family clan. It had been a family clan, much like Jacob's family clan was. We're talking dozens in Jacob's, maybe dozens in the Shechemites, which is why Simeon and Levi kill all the men. They're not killing tens and thousands of people. So Hamor says this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for the families to assimilate. But look at how he sells the deal to Jacob and then how he sells the deal to his own people. In verses 9 and 10, he sells the deal to Jacob by saying, you dwell with us, we'll be one people, you can trade with us, we can intermarry, this is a great way, out of many come one, we're going to come together, what a wonderful unity we will be, the Jacobites and the Shechemites. But then, notice in 2023 how he then sells the deal to his own people. These men are at peace with us, let them dwell in the land and trade, for behold the land is large enough for them, let us take their daughters as wives, let us give them our daughters. And there's only one condition about the circumcision. Will, and then verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? So he sells the deal to Jacob and his sons by saying, we'll all come together, it'll be wonderful, it'll be peaceful. And then he tells his old people, we're going to get all their goods. So he sees this as a windfall for the Shechemites, and a way to subdue Jacob and his family and to get all their possessions. It was never a good deal. And we notice at the end when Simeon and Levi take Dinah out of Shechem's house, this, isn't, this is not a good faith negotiation because they have Dinah in their household. 
So they have dinner and they're making this in no way a good faith negotiation. So we've had Dinah, we've had Shechem, we've had Hamor, Simeon and Levi. On the one hand, they're right to want justice. Dinah was their sister. It's their full sister because same father and Leah is the mother. But instead of justice rightly pursued, Simeon and Levi dis display a rash unbridled passion, like father, like son. And Jacob has so often been a trickster and deceitful, and they are deceitful and vengeful. And they pursue this unsanctioned holy war. And we know from Genesis, and we know later on in Genesis, that God does not look favourably on what they did. In Genesis 49, the final words of Jacob, 49 verses 5 to 7, Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, scatter them in Israel. So the final judgment on Simeon and Levi in Genesis 49 is that they did not seek justice in the right way. They took their swords and they took their swords to the Shechemites just like Shechem took Dinah to be his wife. They hated the Shechemites. It's written all over this passage, a deep hatred for the Shechemites. And what often happens, we become like the people that we hate. Uh, too often in blind in rage, we become like the people who have so angered us and so hurt us. They have a right to be angry. They have a right to be indignant. They have a right to pursue justice. But in their blind in rage, they become like the Shechemites they despise. And they move by deceit and then force. In fact, they may have even been self-consciously trying to repay the Shechemites in kind. And worst of all for Simeon and Levi, again, we understand the indignation. The anger was proper. The desire for justice. The impetus in a brother to defend their sister. But worst of all, they, they carry out their murderous scheme under the sign of the covenant. And the sign of the covenant was a holy sign that God instituted in Genesis 17 as part of the Abrahamic covenant. This shall be the sign for you and your children after you. And they turned it into a sign of destruction and the means of deception. So they took the holy sign that represented God's presence and their commitment to God and they used it to deceive and to destroy the Shechemites. So Dinah, Shechem, Hamor, Simeon and Levi and Jacob. At first glance it does not seem, first glance it does not seem that Jacob is the problem. He does not do too much of anything. But it only takes a second's reflection to see that is the problem. Jacob does not do too much of anything. We have no record here of Jacob wrinkling his brow when his daughter is humiliated. He doesn't act when Shechem and Hamor propose a deal. 
Now he's upset with Simeon and Levi, but what does he say? Is he upset because they spilled innocent blood? Does it mention that he's upset because of the defiling of Dinah? Or that they have broken God's moral law? No, look at verse 30. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me. So he's upset, but not ultimately about violating God's moral law or the violation of his daughter. He's upset because they made his life difficult. So we see throughout this passage a lack of control. Jacob should not have allowed his daughter to go out to the women of the land. He should not have. And that is a knock on Jacob more than it is on Dinah in verse 1. That's Jacob's responsibility. And his sons are out of control as they seize and violate the men of Shechem. And yet through it he does nothing. And it's emphasised in the passage several times, these are your children, Jacob. And it's not always the case that rebellious children means parents have done something wrong. But insofar as you have authority over your children, as Jacob would have as the pater familias here. He is, ex he is exercising an appalling lack of authority and oversight, which is why Genesis 34 emphasises many times, these are your children. Verse 5, but his sons. Verse 7, verse 13 and verse 25, Jacob's sons. Verse 27, sons of Jacob. Verse 1, Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob. Verse 3, Dinah, daughter of Jacob. Verse 5, his daughter Dinah. Verse 7, Jacob's daughter. Verse 19, Jacob's daughter. Verse 11, Dinah's father. And over and over it is emphasised, you are their father, they are your children, what are you doing? Bruce Waltke in his commentary says, Dinah is an object of passion to Shechem, a bargaining chip to Hamer, a source of moral outrage on behalf of her brothers, and passive indifference by her father. That's, that's, that's what we read in Genesis 34. Jacob's indifference is what gets all of this started. His indifference as Dinah wandered about to look upon the pagan women of the city. Jacob's indifference as he hears the word of her violation. Jacob's indifference at the actions of his sons until it rebounds on his own life. So the very end, Gen Genesis 34 verse 31, is left as an open-ended question because it is a question that Jacob himself should have pondered. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? There is something of a jab there at Jacob. Yet Simeon and Levi, we know from Genesis 49, did not go about things in the right way, but... Dad, where were you? Did you not care that they would treat our sister like a prostitute? Jacob allowed Dinah to go unchaperoned to the land. He did not respond with zeal when she was humiliated. But here is a lesson, not only for Jacob's family, but a lesson for us all. When a leader does not pursue justice in the right way, someone will always come along to pursue justice in the wrong way. When you don't do the right thing, you create a vacuum and someone will always 
come to do something to pursue justice the wrong way. It's true politically. It's true in theological debate. If you do not stand up for what is right, if you do not have mature, wise, godly people to stand up for theological truth, someone will see that and they will stand up for truth and do it in all the wrong ways. Or if you do not have a leader who will stand up to injustice in the right way, someone will come along in a blinding zeal and do it the wrong way. There are two wrong responses to evil. Appeasement and avenging. Jacob's sin may have been the worst, which is why the brother's question in verse 31 is open-ended. Here again is one commentator. When spiritual leaders are indifferent to and fail to act decisively about pagan defilements, those who are immature may profane the covenant by their misguided zeal. You see, Jacob's indifference left the door wide open for his son's misguided zeal. Listen, friends, it is harder to see the sin of the coward, but both are wrong. Because it is often the sin of the coward that opens the door for the sin of the zealot. It's so easy to see the sin of the zealot. Oh, you do not have the right tone. You're not doing it the right way. You should have worked through the system. You're not speaking the truth with love. They're wrong. But the sin of the zealot often comes because of the sin of the coward comes first. So let us stop as we move our way through these characters and finish by digging a little deeper into Jacob. Because the heart of the matter is really with Jacob's heart. So let's go a little deeper into Jacob, because we've seen along the way, we've referred to it, Jacob is growing. He's been transformed, we've seen it already, from Jacob that schemed Esau out of his birthright to seeing Israel walking with a limp, wrestling with God. But there is still old Jacob, a bit of old Jacob left in Jacob. And in addition to the passivity, there are two huge problems with Jacob's leadership that led to the catastrophe in this chapter. Number one, Jacob has not been a man of his word. Genesis 28 verse 20, when Jacob is leaving the promised land on his way up to Laban in Haran, before he comes back 20 odd years later, when he's leaving, this is what he says. Genesis 28 verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. Jacob is at Bethel, the house of God, when God appeared to him and he made a vow. When I return, I will come again to my father's house and this stone will be a pillar and shall be God's house, the stone in Bethel. Jacob made a vow in Genesis 28 verse 20 to come back to Bethel. What happens? He doesn't make it to Bethel. He stops at Shechem. 
Shechem is in the promised land 20 miles north of Bethel, which is why you read in Genesis 35, God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Jacob was not in the right spot. He had promised God, when I come back, I'll go to the stone where I made a vow, because this is where I met you, and I'll make it the house of God. But God brought him back, and Jacob thought, it's good enough to settle among the Shechemites. He bought a piece of land that was an act of faith, but he bought the wrong land. Jacob had never really been very good at truth-telling, and here he reaps what he sows. His whole family, from Rachel and Leah to Simeon and Levi to Reuben and Laban, his whole family are always caught up in some deception. They do not know how to tell it straight. When you think about what's going on in our political sphere, it kind of, you know, we kind of get the point. They don't know how to tell it straight. They wouldn't know how to tell the truth if it slapped them in the face. And this is so much in the, in, in the heart of what we might call dysfunctional families, where people just cannot tell the truth. And consequently, Jacob's actions and inactions in this episode bring a sword instead of the blessing that they should have gotten. They get a blessing the hard way instead of the easy way. Jacob was not a man of his word. He didn't go back to Bethel. And secondly, Jacob had not taken seriously God's desire that Israel would be his own people, that they would be a people set apart. And this is so important. God will tell them later that they are a royal priesthood, they're a holy nation. Israel is to be set apart from the Arameans, Laban in the north. They're to be set apart from the Edomites, the descendants, the descendants of Esau in the south. They're not the Arameans. They're not the Edomites. They're not the Hivites. They're not the Jebusites. They are Israelites. But he's moved too close to the Canaanites. And Hamor wants assimilation with the world. He wants the two groups to merge. And we see it all over, a confusion in the church. Merge, merge. He wants livestock and property. But Jacob was supposed to go to Bethel. And if he had not camped and built the booth so close to the world, Dinah would not have wandered off. She would not have been fascinated by the women. She would not have been seized by Shechem. And that's a theme that will recur throughout the Old Testament. God's people are warned about coming too close to the nations around them. And that is why later, when they come into the promised land after the exodus, they're supposed to remove the Canaanites lest they become ensnared in their practices and their religions. My dear friend, don't become ensnared in the world. If you believe in Christ, if you've been brought by grace into his family, we've been set apart to serve him. That's why they're told repeatedly not to marry foreign wives. Not so much an ethnic thing as it was a spiritual thing. Ishmael and Esau took foreign wives. Genesis 21, Genesis 36. Abraham did not want a foreign wife for Isaac, chapter 24. Isaac and Rebekah did not want a Canaanite wife for Jacob, 27 and 28. This is a theme 
You're going to have to live with these people, but it does not mean you have to be like those people. They're supposed to be separate. They're supposed to be different. And Jacob is too concerned with his appearances before his pagan neighbours when he should have been concerned about walking with God. So we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. Is my life, is your life, is the life of my family, the life of your family, is it all about pleasing God or about fitting in? Would you rather fit in or please God? Because sometimes they're different. Am I more, more concerned about how my sin offends God or that I might be offensive to other people? Am I entangled with, in the, with the world in such a way that the world shapes me rather than letting God's word shapes me? Am I choosing comfort, convenience over character and conviction? Am I choosing cowardice over courage? Am I going along to get along? When I wake up, each day is the beating of my heart to make much of Jesus Christ, whatever the cost. Or is the beating of my heart that I might be liked by the people around me? Is the beating of my heart that I may make much of Christ, whatever the cost. However many days, however many months, however many years the Lord gives us. Oh, that our Oh, that our prayer and our desire would be to please Jesus Christ rather than to be thought well of by the world. Because no, make, make no mistake, the world is catechizing you. It really is. It does not have to lay it out in nice question and answer form. Question what do you believe about sex? Question what do you believe about identity? The world does not do it, that would be obvious, although they... Uh, but it catechizes us in the commercials, the films, the YouTube clips, the songs, in the assumptions writ large across the culture. The world is catechizing us. It's teaching you to live and be a certain way. So the answer is not to say, how's that colony coming on in Mars? No, we live as exiles. That's what Peter says. We live as exiles. Just like the Israelites. Eventually, we will live as exiles in Babylon. They live there, they plant there, they work there, and they have to make the best of being strangers in a strange land. But the key is, I hate to tell you, but you are strange. Now, some of you would say, yes, I knew it. You're supposed to be strange. But do you think this is your home? Because if you think this is your home, then everybody should get along with you here in your home. You ought to fit in. But we have a dual citizenship. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have a better home. Oh, you do. And that is your real home, and it's yet to come. And this is an exile home. And we're so thankful for the common grace blessings here. But if, it, if we are exiles here, we are going to look strange every now and then. And Jacob was most concerned, not with his daughter, not with his sons, not with the violation of God's commands, 
but what do the people around me think about me? Is that what you are most concerned about? How do the people around me think of me? My friend, it is more important to please God than to please your community. It is more important to please God than to please your community. 1 John 2 verse 15 says so clearly, do not love the world or the things in the world. My friend, it excites me to say, but we're a chosen people looking forward to the promised land. So don't build close to Shechem. It says, he who marries the spirit of this age will be a widow in the next. It's always hard for Christians to be in the world but not of the world. It's always been difficult for the church to figure out. But we're called to be salt and light. Which means that we don't take the next train to Mars. We won't get there on time anyway. It means that we need to be present, not removed. We do want to show hospitality to our neighbours. We do want to engage our friends with the gospel. But believe in all of that, the churches are meant to be a pure and spotless bride. Different, dare I even say separate, because we're saving ourselves for our groom, Jesus Christ. That's why throughout the Bible, idolatry is linked to adultery, because that is what it's like. You're not saving yourself, you're not keeping yourself pure. You want many husbands when God says, I am betrothed to you. Jesus Christ says, I am the one who truly loves you. I am the one who gave my life for you. I am the one who died for you. I am the one who washed you clean with my blood. Why are you running after other lovers when you have the only husband you ever need in Christ? That is God's good news to the church. We are to be, as a church, our own culture an alternative community, and sometimes we are most relevant when we appear to be irrelevant. We're much more relevant if people say there's something different going on there. And they're not going to like everything that we say. They're not going to like everything that we sing. They won't like everything that's taught from this pulpit, or everything that's taught in the Bible. But the dying world needs to be able to look at the church and instead of seeing a reflection of itself, it sees something different. The world doesn't need to see an echo chamber when it looks at the church, but it needs to see something different because they might just ask the question, how do I get to the next world because this world does not feel like home? And it will never occur to people outside the church if the world thinks the church is just the same as me. Let us follow Christ, who was put outside the camp, and follow him to the eternal life that is to come. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.